Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. For this podcast, Community and Education's Phil Kingston sat down with Collapsing Horses' Dan Colley, director of the utterly charming and exquisitely cruel A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings, a play for children and adults playing out in the peacock stage. Dan talks about the artistic choices at play in the company he keeps, his astute producers, and the short-sighted funding structures that shuts the door and seals the fate of independent theatre companies long after the horse is bolted. Dan gives us an insight into the playful aspect that informs the devising process, the frayed edges of virtuosic collaborations, and the challenge of capturing the imagination of an audience. Enjoy this podcast. Uh, so we're welcoming Dan Colley to the Abbey Theatre Podcast. We're sitting in the control room of the Abbey. My first question, Dan, is that when you were 11 years old... <sighs> You were directed by Jonathan Miller and the Gate Theatre, weren't right. you? That's right, that's yeah. right, and he, he just died recently. He just died, yeah. and, and you, you tweeted about it, and I'm curious, were you old enough to see what a director was doing? Oh, that's a good question. Um, and no, I wasn't, okay. actually. No, I wasn't uh, old enough to see what a director was doing. Um, and, uh, and, and also, it was a while before I saw... A director do a thing that I'm doing now, actually. Anyway, um, but uh, he um, he was very kind and he was a real gentleman. Mm. And I think uh, that production probably lost its way as well. I don't know if anybody saw it, but it was a little. Uh, it was uh, a strange choice. I played Hyman as an 11 year old in a white suit, and he had this marvelous idea of this sort of. A patrician, princely, young person, you know, who would play a kind of a Prince Harry or a, or a William or something, who would come in and just at the end sort it all out. It's 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 a Deus Ex Machina ending, uh, to as you like it. Um, but uh, I came on stage. I just did not have the chops to hold that space and to pull it all together. And uh, over time, like he was, he was always so kind, but uh, and always so supportive and giving me references like, like the princes. Um, but uh, uh, I just uh, I just wasn't able to do it. But you said just then mm. there was a little while after when you saw somebody and you could say that's directing. What was that? Um, I think I uh, do. You know who it was actually? It was Andrew Flynn, who is a Galway-based director. I was in college in Galway and we had a, uh, a nascent script that he wanted to try out and he had asked a bunch of actors around town to come in for a couple of days' workshops. And um, I saw him hammer out the internal consistencies of this particular play. And I saw him send a writer away and come back with another draft. And the draft was substantially changed and better each time. And I just thought, oh, I... I quite, I quite like this give and take. I quite like the uh, writer in the room. I quite like um, actors throwing ideas in and coming up with things and then a, a process that's emerging. It felt like the play was less the thing and the event became more the thing. Yeah. Um, so that was, uh, that was my first time coming across something that might be called dramaturgy. Around about that time, I was getting very interested in Mike Lee films and learning that his process had come from the theatre into the film, into film, but that he'd basically taken the same devising process. Um, and, uh, and those things started to click into place. And then I met Jerry Stembridge here in the Abbey doing The, um, the Grown Ups, uh, a Nicholas Kelly play. 
but that would have been quite different to Jerry's processes. Normally that was much more of a play-play, but it meant that I got to meet Jerry and talk to him about all those plays that he created in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, which he wrote, but they came out of a, a process of playing around with actors, him, them giving him great characters or good lines or good moments that he was then able to write into a thing. So, And that became part of the process of Collapsing Horse? Yeah, okay. yeah, it did very much so. First we play and then we write. Even even when working with Owen, who's much more of a writer-writer, and he'll, the way he thinks is by conceiving of something in advance and noodling around with pen and paper and then a word processor and then bringing it to us. Even then, we've still done a lot of, like, big sky thinking, you know, the, setting up the parameters of it, and he'll come to us with scraps and we'll, we'll, we'll work around that, you know. He'll ultimately author the play, but... Uh, even then, that's that's the that's the that's the deal. Yeah. Okay. So, um, sort of taking a few steps backwards, sure. just to put people in the picture. Yeah. Collapsing Horse is the theatre company that you established when? What about? Two thousand twelve. Two thousand twelve. Yeah. yeah. Now it's it's recently folded, and we'll mm-hmm. talk about that in a second. Um, but this um, process of collaboration, and it seemed to be a group of of stroke friends, stroke fellow artists who decided they wanted to work together. And one of the things that crops up a lot in, in, a lot in your interviews about it is you talk about virtuosic. You talk mm. about virtuosic playing. Mm. And it seems to me that um, that collaborative um, process is helped a lot if there's this virtuosic um, thrust to it. Can you talk a little bit about what virtuosic means to you? Um, I guess uh, that's a good question. It's that when you see something and it's undeniably done well. It may not be your thing, but it has a kind of an undeniable quality to it. And sometimes that's a joke. Sometimes that's a, uh, that's a, that's a puppet brought to life. Uh, sometimes it's, uh, uh, sometimes it's a kind of a neat quip or a, or a, or an internal story thing, but there's just something, um, delightfully accomplished about whatever it is. And so that ends up being kind of a difficult standard to kind of hold yourself to sometimes and you're 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 pushing up against it and we don't always get there but that's the that's the aim and then the play bit is a kind of an inversion of virtuosic because you sort of the word virtuoso is often associated with sort of piano masters or classical musical masters or uh, something which is an awful lot of very hard work but for us the the play is the kind of the the inversion of that take that play very seriously take that Take that experimentation very seriously and you will get um, remarkable results that no one of us would have ever come up with on our own or if we didn't have that playful spirit. Because in one of your interviews you talk about that fine line between kind of um, failure and uh, heroism, so Mm. failure and glory. You You talk about the fine line between failure and glory and it strikes me that the aesthetic of Collapsing Horse was resolutely anti-slick. You wanted you wanted something that kept its yeah. liveness yeah. by playing with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. That's true. So, uh, although the edges might be frayed, there's virtuosity within that. I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. How are you going to find that again without your mates? Yeah, that's a toughie. It's uh, we have such a shorthand. Like, uh, I, it's uh, when I work outside of that context, I realise how special it is. Mm. Um, but also there is a, a, a good challenge in uh, in setting it up again, right? Every time you, you have a, a new room, a new set of collaborators, you go, okay, what is the thing that we were able to do together and how can I describe it and how can I 
create the circumstances again. So it is worthwhile, you know, if you think about the pedagogy of it, I suppose. Think about the pedagogy of it. At the moment, I'm in, uh, I'm teaching in Trinity at the moment, second year's, their second year show, which we're devising together. Uh, and it's a really, it's a really big group. You know, it's 40 people, 20 of whom are on stage. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't have that much time, but that's a familiar feeling. We don't have that much money. It's also a familiar feeling. Um, and between me and Owen, since Owen Quinn, who's the other lead artist of Collapsing Horse, um, we together have been uh, sort of building that ensemble. And so it's been re- it's been really nice for us to sit down and break down. Okay, how did we how did we do what we do, and what how can we transfer that uh, to these students? That's been a really interesting process, and also interesting to be doing like right at the end of Collapsing Horse's life as well. Well, yeah. with, that's interesting because those Lear students are going to be virtuosic in a way, in mm-hmm. the sense that they're in the Lear because of their talent. But you've also done quite a lot of work with like community groups yeah. who haven't been sort of um, self-styled, talented at theatre, but yeah. interested in using theatre as a form of exploration. Do you use the same sort of devising process, the same principles? With them? I do, yeah. Yeah, I do. The material is, is different and the, the emphasis is different. I'd like to, to, to give a, a sort of a more concrete example, so I'm not, I'm not talking so abstractly. Uh, but the but the essential underlying principle is to try and get people not to think about what they're doing and to try and find methods so they just do it. Okay. Yep. And so you can go quicker when they are a group of your mates and trained actors and uh, trained actors in a particular way as well. So it goes really quickly when it's Manus and Genevieve and Aaron and Jack, you know, the, the, the frequent collaborator, collaborators with Collapsing Horse. But when it's a community group or a group of second year uh, students, um, you just have to start a bit earlier than that, you know? Mm. I mean, I can say to Genevieve and Manus, for example, okay, walk the grid, and they'll know exactly what I mean, and they'll start a 40 to 50 minute improv based on that instruction um, and that that was the basis of Very Old Man with Enormous Wings for example is The Grid which is a, a kind of a, a stolen version of Viewpoints from uh, the, the Bogart School but I've never done a I've never done a Viewpoints class or anything it's taken from taken from taken from but yeah so uh, so the goal is you know even though you might have enough t- time or money with a with a cast or with a community group the goal is to get them to understand what walk the grid means you know uh, okay yeah can you summarize that for us uh yeah so the grid is just uh like literally a, a grid that you imagine on the floor of the space um you walk the grid you can only walk on grids you can only uh change uh, change direction on the intersection of these imaginary lines that are on the ground um, and you just walk and then you don't do anything other than walk until you decide that there's a scale of 1 to 10 of speed okay? and you play with different points on that, on that scale so speed of 8, people are running people, 9, 10, whatever, 1 see as slow as you can go and then you add that in with height you add that in with weight then you add in some music and then you add in the possibility of playing with each other, becoming aware of each other, becoming aware of the audience. And all you are to do is think about yourself in relation to that scale. Right? You're not supposed to come up with a character. You're not supposed to make funny voices. You're not supposed to tell a good joke. You're not supposed to make beautiful pictures. You're just supposed to do those things. 
and it goes on for ages and you might get bored but if you get bored that's totally fine you just change what you're doing you just pick a different point on that scale and it's like it's like gym it's like actor gym it's like they're working out uh, what feels good what feels juicy what feels kind of playful um, what's a good picture they start to they start to feel that out and then once you add in a layer which is the characters you've decided or the world that you've decided then they start to play in along those lines but informed by their character and then you can on a good day just kind of capture that and put it in a show and so um, so what does this look like from the outside you've described you mm. described the internal process of the performer yeah but what does it tend up what does it look like it looks like a bunch of people walking around the room jumping up and down going really fast mimicking each other finding nice lines up and down the stage in a kind of like a big long soupy exercise that is occasionally oh beautiful and charming but often like a total mess yeah. so so the point is it's kind of like your your clay and you capture bits from that yeah yeah yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, okay that's fascinating um so let me let me go back to now a, a very old man with enormous wings and tell me a little bit about um the history of that show and how you would have devised it and, and what it how it's been yeah um so it's a, a story a came across and loved in a collection of Marquez short stories and it, it's uh, subtitled A Tale for Children it's in a collection of otherwise um, stories that aren't subtitled that but to be honest I couldn't tell the difference in tone or content in Marquez's stories from one to the other whether it was intended for children or not um, and uh, I loved it because it, w- it, it was ambiguous and strange and it didn't offer any um, easy moral tales uh, in the way that you would sort of expect in a tale for children. You know, there's other very good writers in that genre who are doing that, but you can always tell they're trying to say something, you know, even if they're trying to say something unconventional, like Wilde often is in his, uh, in his children's stories. Could, there's something, something going on. With this, I really felt he was totally ambivalent about the morality of these characters, what they were doing to each other, what they were doing for themselves. And every time you expected the metaphor to, to, to manifest and say, ah, oh, this is what it's about, he just turns another corner and doesn't let you do that. Uh, so, it, like, so, so, it, so it appealed to, I suppose, the cynic in me, I suppose, and it appealed to uh, a sense that... Um, a sense that young people, just people in general, might want the thing that's against the grain. Anyway, I liked the story. Um, I was working with a company called Collapsing Horse at the time, which is my company, and we um, have, have these ideas that we sort of throw around, often coming out to a funding deadline, uh, not a coincidence. This was the one that we, that we decided to go for. We got a bit of funding to develop it. Development for us means a sort of a, a version of the process I just described, at the end of which we'll have you know enough video material and notes that somebody can then go and write a script, and then we'll go and get full funding or whatever. But in this case, we had just had a bad run of luck of funding, and we decided that we'd just throw the development and the making of the show all in one. I would decide to shorten the amount of time I had, the amount of people that I had, and uh, work with people that I knew very well. And so I got Manus and Genevieve in a room. I made certain key decisions about the location. I knew I wanted them to be in a kitchen or a domestic setting a kind of a, or a workshop. Um, and I knew that I wanted 
the piece to unfold gradually to allow the storytelling elements to come in one by one first the words then the sound then the music then small objects that set the characters then uh, painted backdrops and then this uh, live video camera which would bring quite a small piece to something really quite large and almost crude cinema or something like that so I made those key choices we got in the room for a a week um, and at the end of that week we had most of the show and then we had two weeks rehearsals sometime later in the year in which we before we went to the riverbank the riverbank where we're artists in residence and the riverbank gave us a full week of technical rehearsal which was really essential for something like this and and then we did a number of shows there so it's a kind of a, a bare bones description of the process it was a it was a fairly straightforward desire to tell to tell this story, but acknowledging that it's not a very theatrical story, right? It doesn't have a, 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 a it doesn't have a big arc to it, you know. It's and also there is the challenge of the wings, right? This these wings are so beautifully and ambiguously described. You have to create them in your mind, and there's this great line where the doctor comes to comes to treat the boy. And uh, he can't help but look, examine the angel. And he looks at his wings and he says, now that I see them, I can't understand why more men don't have them. Right. So it's like you have to see them to believe them, which is a real challenge in theatre. Right. Because often what we're trying to do is we're trying to uh, create a metaphor. You know, if it was a film, it'd be obvious what you would do. You'd big either puppet or, or, or CGI wings or something but with us we, we want to put it in your mind I suppose and with something as important as this um, we decided we wanted to kind of dissipate this, this idea of the wings and you'd construct it in your mind I hope that's not too rambly Phil No that's grand Yeah. Um, um, it leads me on to um, you, you mentioned the fact that the, the, the challenge of theatre, which is to sort of create things in people's minds, really, as opposed to being too literal about them. Mm. And it had me thinking about... The theatre's about collusion. We collude about the lie while mm. also being aware that it's artificial. Mm. But we, how, as a director, do you lose that collusion? I mean, how... Um, when you watch a show and you realise that the collusion is lost, what are the, what are the crimes that theatre can commit to lose the collusion <laughs> of the audience? Oh, a really good one is tell people what it's about to tell them why it's important lecture them I think that's a real killer I really do I switch off then I switch off um, uh, that's that's a good one um, uh, and I think it's frequently a matter of taste as well but um, and it and also depends on the show and I think I've made shows where I've made things just a little bit too just a little bit too richly realised and didn't pull away from it. Um, whereas Can I think, you say, say a bit more about what you mean by richly realised? Like, mm, I'd like to think of a, a kind of a concrete example of a, of a decision I've made. I suppose, um, so I made a show called Connor at the End of the Universe, which was for four to six-year-olds. It was a wordless piece, 35 minutes, and it was a journey through space and time. Um, for uh, a little character called Connor. And the uh, the problem I was coming up against all the time was that I was studying the physics of time travel and wanted to convey this 
even in a kind of a even in a kind of like a sensory way, if not a literal way, um, to people aged four to six. But I just kept on falling into the trap of trying to literally realize a kind of a sci-fi film um, uh, uh, for 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 people aged four to six. And I should have I should have danced a bit more, you know. I should have uh, made things a little less explicit. I should have. There was something about trying to make um, to make this boy's journey through wormholes look like journeys through wormholes, even though that's a like a like a theoretical physics sort of nonsense. Nobody's ever done that. It doesn't look like anything, and so um, so that was probably a time when I think when I think I look at that versus a very old man with enormous wings, and I think. I'm, I'm more I'm more fond of the approach of a very old man with enormous wings where you select a number of poignant images and you try not to put them all together for people you try and put let them let them put those things together in their mind so they end up seeing the man with the wings in their head without you having to say this is the man with enormous wings or this is Connor going through a wormhole for example so again it's this yeah. idea of not being literal it's yeah, trusting the imagination of the audience. That's exactly right, I think. Now, yeah. one of the things that um, that is striking about a very old man is is also how the storytellers are another layer of the drama of the, of the piece. Yeah. Because there's the content, there's um, uh, the, the content of the story itself, and that is told in a variety of ways. Um, but then there's also Genevieve and Manus's characters mm. and how they tell it. Mm. Um, can you say a little bit more about that? Because it's such a distinctive part of the mm. show. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I don't want to say too much about it because I think the kind of mystery of of them is is actually a key a key part of it. I didn't want to answer too many questions about it, sure. and even we hold it in a kind of an ambiguous space ourselves. But um, the question emerged. <laughs> Who are these weirdos who would want to tell this strange story about a terribly cruel magic person? Oh, sorry, about a, a very magical person who was treated very, very badly. And so that question is, is out there, I suppose. They, they, they start by saying, we like this story, and so we tell it. <laughs> you know? Um, uh, and so we're going to begin now. Um, and at various points, Manus occupies m- much more so than Genevieve a character, and that is the character of the old man. And he's the he's the he's the one who who doesn't speak. He's the one who is the the the, the servant in the master servant relationship that's going on between him and Genevieve. Um, and so he's the one who who, as far as we go, he embodies the old man. Um, but yes, we we. We came to those characters by asking ourselves, who are these weirdos who like this story? Fine. uh, Let's leave that there. And I think the very fact that you say we want to keep it ambiguous and we've even kept it ambiguous ourselves again proves this point about ambiguity and imagination over literalism. Yeah. Um, Because when I took my daughter to see it, she was fascinated by the relationship between the storytellers. Mm. And, And I think that is... That is another layer of the story of a mm. very old man, mm. and how they interact with each other, mm. and it gives um, uh, both the characters actually, though more openly Genevieve's character, a chance to be kind of quirky and oblique in a way that children absolutely identify yeah, with, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, which is 
yeah, one, I think one of the reasons it's so popular. Thank you. Which brings me to it. Now, you said um, that you want to make a piece of theatre oh, where children yeah. and adults can spend time together. Yeah. How do you do that? How do you do that? Well, you get on with it, I suppose, and, and, and sometimes you're successful and sometimes you aren't. In this case, it was the choice of material. That was a big part of it. I, you know, I describe how it's called A Tale for Children and a collection of Marquez stories, but it's quite hard to tell, which is, and it isn't. And so just to trust the author that, that uh, he intended this to be for children. But I don't think the way he's written it, it's intended for children to read, very young children, not eight-year-olds to read. I feel like it's something to be read to them. I think... I, I've 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 always kind of struggled with theatre. I've always kind of struggled with the audience bit of theatre for young audiences, because our first show that we made, Collapsing Horse, was Monster Clock, and it was it had puppets in it. It was a an, an adventure story. It had a kind of a a sort of Victorian kind of epic kind of quality to it, but it was also like self-conscious and comic and had a kind of like rye sort of Futurama sort of a, 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 a comedy to it. It was self-aware in that way. And so when we marketed it, you know, uh, a really ambitious producer straight out of college and in, on his Seeds programme, Matt Smith, said, OK, it's for all ages. It can be for families and also it's for our friends. And we were like, yeah, OK, cool. I think kids will be into it. There's no swearing. They're not going to be harmed by anything that's in it, but cool. Um, and that turned out to be at least as popular, probably more popular with our, our own peers who are engaging with it, I think, at a, uh, with a certain nostalgia. Um, with this, uh, this is the same generation that goes to, like, like unapologetically to Pixar films without accompanying children. And that's me, by the way. Then thereafter, you're engaged in conversations with programmers who want to know what age it's for, and there's very good reasons for that, but it always seemed quite difficult for me because the answer is, I'm making a show that I want to see. I just am, you know? And I, and I find the moment at which I'm stepping out and thinking, what does the audience want to see here? I'm just to- like, I get lost, do you know? What do, like, the, the answer is, what do I want to see? And um, sometimes there are... Uh, specific themes and ways of telling the story that I think, do you know who would really like to be in on this is some eight-year-olds or some 12-year-olds. But other than that, I'm, I'm making a show that I want to see. And it was quite late that I, I wrote that, that I said, we're making something. It's quite late in the process. We're making something for them to share. And I realized it was because there's things in it that the kids can teach the adults and there's things that the adults can teach the children and if they walk out together and have a conversation then I think they'll get the full spectrum of, of, of what was going on in Marquez's story and our strange adaptation of it um, I think in particular eight year olds I think that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a cusping age where there's still magic in the world but there's this dawning rationality and I think there's a, like I think there's a kind of a mourning uh, for or the magic that's just beginning to recede into your life and then I think it's quite hard to discover that um, sometimes until much later maybe you go to drama school um, and and I think it's not bad for the adults to be asked questions about um, why were they so 
horrible to him or what happened there in the end. And I think that's it's not bad. It's not a bad thing to have to struggle with that answer, and uh, in, in whatever way you do. So now, collapsing horse has folded. The, yes. the horse has been put out to pasture, taken it to the glue factory. Glue factory. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, so the, the horse now. But I just want to establish uh, with you now that this is not as a result of funding cuts, but because you, as individual artists, have decided that this particular pattern has ended, has naturally ended, and you're going to sort of go your own mm. ways while continue to work to, with, with each other. Is that the case? Uh, no, it's, 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 it's both. Uh, funding okay. certainly brought the decision to a head. Okay. Um, and then we decided to... There were ways to muddle on, absolutely, um, that we could have gone project to project and not paid ourselves for the... Uh, or paid each other for the, the work in between, for the companyness of it. Um, it's a real like it's a real testament to Matt Smith and Kate Ferris, the two producers, that without regular funding from the state, we were for about three or four years able to employ first me and Matt, then me, Matt, Kate, then me, Matt, Kate, and Owen on year-round contracts, um, which meant that when we were, uh, which just meant that when we were thinking up ideas or doing accounts or uh, knocking on doors for money, all that time was covered, was, was, was paid, whereas the project-to-project model just doesn't allow for that. It allows for specific weeks for, um, for payment for the work that you're doing, but not, not making a company. And companies are the way, is the way that we wanted to make work, and we wanted to keep going with that. We wanted to, we wanted to bring more people into that fold um, and... Um, we could have changed the plan we could have kept the brand we could have just done a show once every year two years or something like that whenever we got the funding for it but we decided when it became clear that uh, a couple of funds were just not going to be available to us in the foreseeable that we would be better off um, ending it that uh, if we couldn't do it the way we wanted to do it, better to burn out than fade away, I suppose. And um, and there's also something... At that moment, that's when you start to think about it as a kind of an artistic choice, right? Mm. That's the moment where you say, oh, OK, so how is this... Uh, how is this a positive thing for our collaboration with each other and a collaboration with other people outside? And that's the moment where you say, ah, okay, so if you make an announcement, then everybody will know it at the same time. And that's the moment where people's memories crystallize about Collapsing Horse. Mm-hmm. And uh, only the good, you know, it's like being at your own funeral. You only remember the good things, you know? It's, the, it, it's, it's, a, remarkable, it's a remarkable thing. Like, it, it's this moment where, you know, the, the, the failures along the way, and there have been them, you know, uh, artistic, financial, you know, whatever it might be, naturally as a company goes. Um, it's, you know, you undoubtedly do crystallize that, uh, uh, crystallize the good memories when you, when you say that you're going to go out. It's mm. the faulty towers approach. Yeah, you just make a glorious legacy and stop just before you have to pivot or compromise and then change that a bit. You know. Yeah. Now this talks to a, a, a provocative and, and quite influential talk you gave in 2017. Mm-hmm. The gig is up mm. about how the arts are funded in mm-hmm. this country. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's really it's relevant to more than just this country, mm. which in which you pointed out that the administration of the arts is prioritised over the actual art. Mm. Now. Um, 
to, to, to summarise, um, you, you, you gave a provocation to the Arts Council, which is why don't you just pay people to be artists, mm. right, fund them to be artists. Now, that was um, over two years ago. Mm. What's happened since? Have you seen any influence of this? Have you, what's the, the, the outcome of that talk been for you? Um, it, well, it was helpful in our thinking in Collapsing Horse, actually. Um, uh, I made that I made that speech and and, and put the, the paper up online, and um, it provoked the conversation with me and Matt and Kate, in which we said, okay, actually that's going to be our priority from now. And and that 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 I think characterised the way Collapsing Horse was structured, was that we would pay artists to to be artists. Um, uh, you know, and the best example of that is you know Owen Quinn, who's not interested in theatre administration at all. <laughs> he's he's, a, he's an artist, he's a playwright, and uh, when he was finished his PhD, you know, we said, "Come work for Collapsing Horse." He's like, "What will I do? Is I going to just be an artist?" I was as artistic director involved in in administration, but you know, also a, a huge chunk of my time was given over to, to just to just being an artist, and and we found a way to pay me pay me for that time as well, but. Uh, uh, yeah, it's the most expensive approach, with the with the least uh, with, the, with the least lucrative option. You know, yeah, we you, would have been. You characterised yeah. it in the talk as being yeah. something like um, sitting on your hole, waiting for an idea to come. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Did a bit of that. Yeah. Great. Yeah, I just I think that's very important, and it's just not it's not the thing that's that's thought about in uh, in it's not just in arts funding. It's it's in the sort of development of ideas at all. Research and development is increasingly more and more about what is the marketable thing that will come out of it. You know, this is the same problem universities are experiencing. You know, less and less of their funding is coming from the state, so you're doing a lot less theoretical physics and you're doing a lot more, um, uh, like, silicon chips, right? Stuff that stuff that industry will pay for. Um, that'll come out. Whereas the, the real moonshots are done by... By um, by by people who are, are under pressure only to be creative, only to solve uh, solve problems in, in some cases, or uh, or dream up ideas. And I think that that was what that talk was a, an attempt to to capture: is that there was something a little bit outcome oriented that had crept in and has crept in to arts funding, and it and it's 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 a it's a it's a bias we all have as well, you know? Like, that was the moment that we in Collapsing Horse had to check, oh, crap, yeah, we're actually just funding administration. Like, we are creating the same structures that the previous generation did, mimicking corporate structure for some reason. Um, and so, yeah, everything we've, we've done since then has been an attempt to change that, but it didn't work. Well, to play devil's advocate for a mm. bit, just um, sort of um, interrogating the philosophical position that sure. you took, um, if you don't have it, you said earlier mm. the deadlines are what helped us kind of get mm -hmm. get going. Yeah. So it's very hard without an external pressure for a deadline to mm. create your own deadlines. Mm. Or is that how you define an artist, a person who's capable of creating their own deadlines or creating their own structures in order that the work gets produced? Yeah, I think I think you'd find another structure of deadlines, even if it wasn't coming from, from an external source. You always do. I mean, there's no reason to do the theatre at all, right? We've created that. We've created that um, constraint on ourselves. we created that. We set the opening night, you know, mm. arbitrarily. We haven't written the script yet, you know. We don't know who's in it yet, you know, but we're opening on the 9th of September, you know. Um, so, 
you do create those uh, those focusing structures as well. You know, one thing I I I I, I really I really um, sort of in, in, informed my thinking about how we should structure Collapsing Horse is the 24-hour plays here uh, uh, in aid of Dublin New Theatre. I just think it's the most marvellous night at the theatre because it's, it's fresh off the press and everybody has brought all of their goodwill to it. Uh, and there is a frisson that's going on between the stage and the people in the audience, and it's this game, it's this total conceit, mm. you know. We, if we, if we, if we really wanted to make a play, we should have taken longer than twenty-four hours, but we didn't, you know. And so then you get something that's that's responding to the day in question, you know. You get something that uh, that's responding to mistakes that happen live. And um, one stage, I would have liked to, uh, you know, I would have liked to have built a company that was a combination of taking its time to create long-term things, tour old works in repertoire, so that the uh, the same artists are getting work and spending a bit of time alongside each other, plus putting things on really, really quickly, right, right at their edge. Well, it, yeah. it also it, it speaks again of something we've talked about before, which is that collusion. Those twenty-four hours places mm. is an absolute, oh, it's an evening, collusion. Total, total, total collusion, mm. and also that kind of rough and ready virtuosic element as yeah. well. Yeah. Everybody's come with their A game. Going, yeah. Well, let's just see what happens. Yeah. Uh, and it strikes me that your aesthetic is keeping working against uh, slickness, though, as you say, you want to keep that space for long-term work and development. strikes me that it's a classic example of against the deadly theatre of Peter Brook, Mm. that that theatre which is just kind of like the industry of theatre, just kind of churning it out, you know. Um, um, You want to keep that messy edge, the ragged edge. Yeah, 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 you do, and, and find ways to 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 uh to not just make a cloth and rag the end as well yeah. right to uh to have had something that is in and of itself raggedy there's that great line from um I guess the right stuff uh, or the real thing what's that tom stoppard play anyway he says you'd want to be careful of those phrases i'm paraphrasing now you want to be careful of those clever quips there you have a phrase so niche that you can't see the unend the end to unpick it I just think that was great. Which r- r- strikes me, when you were starting with Collapsing Horse, can you remember that first impulse in a room with Owen and Aaron and yeah. Matt to go, hey, let's, let's make a... Why did you decide to make the first monster clock? It was the culmination of a bunch of skills that a load of friends had been honing through college. Those guys had been in Trinity, so Owen, Matt, Aaron, Jack. They'd been in Trinity, in players. Some of them were doing drama and theatre studies, others were doing other courses, but they had been uh, doing that and then taking shows to the Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, players' shows that would transfer to the Edinburgh Fringe. And the Edinburgh Fringe is a very specific aesthetic, I suppose. Uh, and where they were playing was kind of at the comedy end of theatre, you know? Um, and with like no get in time, very little in the way of tech, people sleeping on floors, sharing beds, handing out flyers, selling their own shows, all of that. That was where their that's where the their aesthetic, their comedic aesthetic was coming. Aaron had also been, as well as being an extraordinary actor and and, and, and creator of live things, is also an amazing three uh, D artist. He'd been fashioning puppets from players show for players shows out of rubbish you know um and really bringing them to life and owen was owen was a like a, a writer with ambitions to write a like a big comedy that felt like it was about more than just the gags and uh matt had 
stepped into the producing realm and was a rough magic seed and was the one who was placing this outside of what they had previously thought, which was just going to be a thing in players' theatre, into the city itself that the rest of the industry would come and see. And they did, and we did. And um, I think because it had been going, because their influence had been coming from, coming from Edinburgh, but they wanted to up the, um, I suppose, philosophical, uh, thematic, and also... Um, uh, aesthetic level, it just had an entirely fresh feeling to to what had been going on in the city already, which was really good stuff, but l- also overwhelmingly about the real. It was a lot of documentary stuff, the uh, the influence of German theatre and uh, forced entertainment was being felt. You know, uh, that was the that was the the tastes of some of the programmers at the time, and that was the the that's what the kids were doing, right? That's what the kids out of DYT were were coming up with theatre club, the company, all these people had been coming out of you know the Willie White School of DYT and Rasha Go and having started the Fringe Lab and and all of that. But it it felt quite different because it was embracing artifice, because mm. it wasn't real, because it was an escape and a fantasy. Um, and it turned out that actually audiences wanted that too, and it also felt quite it also felt quite strange. So really, it's a, it's a kind of a long way of saying it was a bunch of pals that put on a show right out of college and felt that something clicked. Absolutely, and, and I was um, I was trying to relate that back to that idea of that the artists create their own deadlines, but it's mm. just like you simply wanted to play together. Yeah, and and I think it sounds as though Matt being there was quite important as well, needing, okay. needing that to go, well, hang on, mm. guys, you can play, but actually mm-hmm. this, this, this has a place in a yeah. wider ecosystem. Yeah. Well, look, going back to a little bit to, to, to where we started with, with the, um, this 11-year-old boy dressed in white <laughs> in the gate, um, in an interview that you gave to UCD a few years ago, you were urging the interviewer and sort of people who are embarking on a career in, in the arts to call yourself an artist mm-hmm. just to make sure that you call yourself an artist because mm-hmm. that's part of it mm-hmm. yeah you can be a barista and you whatever mm. but make sure you call yourself an artist when did you call yourself an artist that's a good question i would credit the dublin fringe festival in particular with cultivating that in me that was that was the way they addressed the people who were applying to them who were working with them who had conversations with them they always said artist and I remember kind of getting a little bit red in the face when that's what I was called by Rasha Gohan or Tom Lawler who were there at the time and uh, uh, and then eventually come, came to see why that was that was an important thing yeah it was the, it, the, the, the Dublin Fringe Okay, and this connects a little bit with some of the work that um, you did with Larkin Community College a few years ago on uh, the Rights Museum, mm. and you, you you did some blogs for the Arts and Education Portal, mm-hmm. and one of them you say, one of the things I've learned is that how we frame our work mm. um, really matters to how other people view it, but also matters enormously to how we value it to ourselves, mm. yeah? So... Does calling yourself an artist frame your identity to you in a way that makes you value it differently? I think that's exactly right, yeah. I think that's exactly right. And also, you know, it, it ties in with that, that other thing that you referred to, which is, the, um, which is its place in the world. Not just, not just funding, but the esteem that that funding uh, means. Um, uh, so it's a slightly embattled identity, um, but lots of identities are forged in battles. 
Well, because the identity of an artist, sort of the post-romantic idea of an artist, is an interesting one, particularly mm. as it's um, uh, in our much more utilitarian and um, right-wing world, mm. where um, if you're not useful, then mm. you know, if you're not serving our purposes, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Just out of curiosity, what do you think is the evolution uh, of the of the identity of artist in the future? How does the artist? How do you, as an artist, need to? take a stand against some of the forces in the world that are happening at the moment? Oh, I'm so tired of standing. I'd just love to be an artist. You know, I really, like, I... I, I that's, 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 the, that's the job, <laughs> right? And then uh, doing that is a kind of a political statement in itself in a world that, that, that doesn't... Uh, that is increasingly more output-driven, uh, more neoliberal to say, I, I'm an artist and the work has value in and of itself regardless of what it sells for, um, is the statement. Um, and I know that's naive and not true. Right, or it's idealistic, right? Yes, but but I, I, just to, mm. to summarise what you just said, you're saying that you refuse to engage in the terms of debate that are being imposed on you, yeah, and which is fair enough. And there's some people who are really good at it, right? There's some people who are really good at it, like Philip uh, Philip King, who is the um, who's a, a musician and a and a, and a, and a marvelous songwriter and a, a singer and a kind of a, f a filmmaker who is the proprietor of Other Voices, the presenter of Other Voices, his company Southwind Blows, um, has increasingly, uh, through the kind of the, the later stage of his career, become a spokesman for the arts. And it's really marvellous at connecting people who don't necessarily think of the arts as having a value in and of themselves. So he, he talks to the American Chamber of Commerce, he talks to... Uh, Intel. He talks. He's brought these people together in West Kerry in the middle of winter uh, into a conference. He and Neil O'Connor have done that, and uh, they put artists and creatives and tech people and people with money all in the same room. And got, it's marvelous for creating that insight. And I just think that's great, Philip. Right? But we talk. I talked to him about this. I'm like, God, it's amazing what you're doing. He's like, Yeah, I know. I just want to write songs. You know, <laughs> at some uh, you know at some level, you know he also loves and is very good at what he's doing as a producer and as an advocate and of creating that space for other people. And I feel like with Collapsing Horse, it was an attempt to make that space for myself. But actually, what ended what it ended up being a lot of the time was so much of the job was getting the resources to make the space mm. was making was making the case was selling yourself was. Uh, was trying to advocate um, and increasingly I found myself being more that than, than an artist Okay, well that's yeah. over now Okay, maybe in a way Yeah. so what's next? Um, so like I say I'm, I'm working with uh, Trinity students at the moment we're devising a new piece and that's very exciting it's around uh, fear and people's various cultural responses to fear through scaring ourselves, through lulling and making muck. We're borrowing the structure from No Go the Bogeyman by Marina Warner, which is a great book which documents that. Um, I'm also working on a film with Nuala O'Connor, which is a documentary about uh, altered states of consciousness. It's called Beyond. Um, and it comes out of a, actually com comes out of a, a collapsing horse production, which is ill-fated in terms of funding. But we developed it for a while called Dance Plague, which is about the dancing plagues of 1518, in which hundreds of people danced themselves in a state of uh, like ecstatic trance, 
or tortured trance, if you like, for weeks, and some of them died from exhaustion or heart attack or whatever it was. Fairly common occurrence in the uh, in the Low Countries in the Middle Ages, and there was a really big one in Strasbourg in 1518. So that's a thread that that of 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 uh, anyway. So on I go. But anyway, that's that's a, that's a sort of a thread of that's a thread of. Um, of the human experience that does go through various bits of history and time and up to the present moment, even if it doesn't take the form of dancing plagues, which seem very strange to us now, but uh, but actually that the, the but actually it's there, it's under the surface. Anyway, so uh, that's a that's a film. Films take ages to make. I've learned, um, and uh, I've got a couple of ideas for for new shows, and I'm still working with the Riverbank um, in a kind of uh, in a residency format, but without the support of the Arts Council at the moment, but just their support and the support of Kildare County Council. Great. Dan Coley, oh have you any last things you'd like to say? Oh, golly. Uh, I'm sure there will be once I, that door slams behind me, but this has been great. Thank you very much, Phil. Absolute pleasure, mate. Thank Absolute you. pleasure.